With this episode of Wandering Toward Wisdom, Joel and I wrap up this Seven Deadly Sins uh, series with what might be your favorite, lust. Lust is so prevalent in our society that to talk about how prevalent it is in our society is just about the least sexy thing someone can say. Nevertheless, we, we try to define lust, talk about the purpose of sex, which I think most of us only have about half right, and we get into possible approaches to dealing with lust that don't involve self-flagellation, accountability groups, or even blinders and chastity belts. In fact, the way we think about lust and some of the methods that we use to try to deal with it may, in fact, be weakening our ability to respond to lustful temptation. Also, is lust considered one of the worst of the sins? Come see what the Christian tradition has said about the place of lust among the seven deadly sins. We also give a few last thoughts on the nature of the seven deadly sins as a whole and how simply trying to stop sinning is not really a useful or even biblical response to sin. And we try to give some general ideas about how to respond to sin. Uh, please check out tacticalfaith.com for blogs, for event information, and for our other podcast, uh, TF Radio. Uh, but for now, listen and enjoy. Welcome back to uh, Wondering Toward Wisdom. Today we are talking about lust. And uh, lust is a sin that I think most of us are uh, relatively familiar with. Um, and maybe there, it may not seem like there's much to say about it. Nevertheless, we're going to talk about it and maybe uh, maybe add a few things to uh, what you know about lust and maybe a little bit about response to it. So but let's be, get started by Joel telling us, why don't you tell us what lust is? So when we look at what the, how the tradition has defined lust, it's about... Uh, having an excessive desire for sexual to pleasure for sexual pleasure defined by physical pleasure from physical acts. So, um, lust at its core is about um, equating sex and pleasure, and um, whether the and, and looking for the pleasure in, in physical acts. Um, now, what makes this kind of a tricky one, just like gluttony is this is rooted in an essential need as in sex is required to procreate. Um, and so desiring sex isn't a bad thing in and of itself, uh, which I think is important to emphasize because growing up, a lot of the messages that I heard, and I think a lot of people uh, in, in my age roughly that heard was, you know, kind of, sex is, is really bad and then you get married and suddenly sex is good and there's some difficulty making that transition and um i i think making it clear that sex is a is a great thing um and it's a necessary thing for uh the human species to continue um is is worth talking about um however when when we focus on sex as a means of pleasure and that is is where our focus lies um that's where where we get into trouble yeah that seems that seems if there's a hard lesson for our uh society now it's probably that and i think um it's probably the idea that sex is not for pleasure because that's all sex is for in our society. It seems like, it seems like, it seems like what you do is you, you have sex for the sake of pleasure. And then every once in a while, you'll uh, check your temperature and make sure you do things at exactly the right time. So you get pregnant. 
produce your toy or your child. And then, you know, if the child's not right, you kill it, but, uh, you, and then you go about having sex for pleasure again. So how is this even a message that our society could hear, including among Christians? In fact, let me add, let me add an element to this. So, so part of the issue is that sex is all about pleasure. Our society has concluded that sex is for pleasure and that the creation of human beings out of it is an annoying problem or a benefit if you want to have kids. But generally speaking, it's an annoying problem. On the other side, then we have, we have the teaching that sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. You should be terrified of it. And then as soon as you get married, it's great, which like you said, leads to some of us. And I remember struggling with, I had this general sense of like a shadowed feeling over myself for years before I realized, oh, I feel guilty for having sex with my wife, uh, which maybe that was appropriate. Maybe it wasn't, but it's almost because my attitude is directed toward pleasure and my sense is that pleasure is bad. So, so here's the issue. Society says sex is all about pleasure. And if you want to have kids, that's cool, I guess. It seems like Christians are saying pleasure is bad. Sexual pleasure is bad outside of marriage, but sexual pleasure is great inside of marriage. But it's all about pleasure. And if we go back to some of the, if we go maybe into the Catholic teaching, it seems like sex is purely to make babies. If you're not in the process of making a child, don't have sex because that's bad. Which the whole sense I'm getting is society says sex is for pleasure. I'm taught most of my life before getting married that pleasure, sexual pleasure is bad, and then it suddenly becomes okay. And through it all, I'm I'm confused about is is pursuing sexual pleasure okay? Is it a good thing? Or should I just be having babies? You see, I mean, this is a big kind yes. of Gordian knot problem where all these things are tied together in complicated ways that lead us to some sort of semi-gnostic confusion about what I'm supposed to be doing. In fact, this came up, we're, we're going through our catechism at church, and one of the questions was, we were talking about lust. And the thing, and I asked this question, I think I just made everybody mad, and I need to apologize to my church for the way I am in Sunday school. But <laughs> um, but they they were talking about how you can, you can lust after your own wife, and so, therefore, there's a kind of, I forget how they were describing it, but it's sort of like, you need to make sure that you're not focusing on your own pleasure in, in the sexual act. You need to be considering your partner. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's good. And so I raised my hand and said, so the less attracted you are to your sexual partner, the better person you are. Oh, goodness. Right? Because the less you're focused on your own pleasure, the less you enjoy it, the better you are. And so you see the confusion that's kind of arising. Like, what? It, how, how do we? How do we get through this? So, I think a, a key thing is figuring out what what the purpose of sex is for. The problem I think comes when we try to reduce sex to any single um, purpose. So, if if we reduce sex to procreation. Well, we're missing out on something. And, and interestingly, you know, that's how the Catholic tradition is understood. But there are moments in the Catholic tradition where some prominent people uh, say otherwise. For, for instance, Aquinas, uh, he criticizes the man who, in, in his words, is too ardent with his wife, going so far to call him as an, an adulterer because he's, he, he's, you know, which that has nothing to do with, with, um, with procreation or not it's it's about how you you approach sex 
Wait, now wait, when you when you say too ardent with his wife, do you mean like not willing to have sex with her or getting a little too crazy in the way that he's having sex with her? I think more the latter. I think the focus okay. is where where he starts to see his wife as an object of pleasure rather okay. than um than his his partner, his his spouse, his uh, the the one he's united with in marriage. Um you know, on the flip side when if we try to reduce sex to a matter of pleasure, then we miss out on this important element of procreation. Um and in uh Rebecca de Young's Glittering Vices, she does a nice job of talking about the role of sex in um, in unitive love, and where sex is something that helps unite man and wife um, in a way that, um, yes, it produces pleasure, and being um, unitive is is a love that is. Uh, procreation that is in, in favor of creation but it's not necessarily just for creation of, right. of, of babies so so maybe i mean uh, i think there in some ways there's an easy answer to this in other ways i think in practical terms it becomes very difficult but so the idea is that it is not that you should not enjoy sex and right. you should ju- just be you know i don't know do whatever you can to make sure that you enjoy it as little as possible but have your partner enjoy it as much as possible. Meanwhile, they need to enjoy it as little as possible while trying to make you enjoy it. And it's just stop having sex, right? It seems like that's the solution. Uh, but that's not. It's The idea is that to enjoy something together. Yes. Right? It's not, it's not I am using you. And I think a lot, a lot of this happens, even in marriages. I'm using you for pleasure. Uh, you just happen to be there, right? Um whatever, you know, I, don't, I almost don't care who or what you are, as long as I'm getting the pleasure. Um, the idea is that it like, just like eating, right. The, the proper, the proper role of eating in terms of gluttony is to enjoy food together. And that draws people together. So too, I guess lust is when the person, I will use the language of objectification. When the person becomes merely an object that you use for your own pleasure. So the goal is not to not have pleasure. Uh, you should enjoy the pleasure but it's that you're doing it together and that is naturally procreative um, because they're rejoicing in love together is in fact, the nature of the Trinity, I would argue. Um, And that's what gives, gives, that's what ends up bringing about creation, inclusion, salvation, sanctification, the whole nine yards. So, uh, so I think that's pretty good. Um, so why is lust then bad or how do I distinguish it from, from appropriate desire? That's where it gets tricky because, um, maybe you're better than me. Maybe our listeners are better than me, but I have a tendency when it comes to my own sin to try and explain how it's not actually sin and how everyone else's is actually sin. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and it's not just this, but um, in too many situations, but you know, with lust, it's like, you know, we think we, we can have a tendency to think that um, 
the way we go about it is okay. It's the way that other people go about it is problematic. Um, the the but lust becomes problematic because lust is is a a focus on yourself or on I I think you could even go say go so far to say that focusing on the procreative aspect um, can can be related and only the procreative aspect can be related to lust in the sense that. Um, I know I said, you know, lust is an excessive desire, but I, I think we could even say it's a disordered desire for sexual pleasure. And so if you're trying to not think about the sexual pleasure, that's disordered. That's not right. That's not the way it's meant to be. And so that's problematic as well. Um, so when, we, when we're focused on, on sex in, in some particular, or where we, where we reduce love or reduce sex to a single purpose, what happens is we tend to lose sight of, of uh, the value and dignity of other people. Um, you know, if, if it's just about procreation, then husband is about providing the sperm, the wife is about providing the egg and carrying the baby. Um, you know, the fact that you are that you are husband and wife and you are united in marriage is at best secondary to the fact that you can make babies together now. Um, if you're focused on pleasure, then you don't, you're not concerned about the person as much in it, uh, unless your concern is how can they give me more pleasure? And so you're, you're more likely to do things um, that will, that will, help to produce the end result that you're looking for from sex. You know, you're, you're more willing to lie or be manipulative or, um, or to um, objectify the person. And all of those are problematic. None of those are, are how we should be approaching sex. Um, okay, so, so it sounds to me like what you're saying is that so lust is a disordered desire, excessive desire in, in some ways, but maybe, maybe one way of thinking about it, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that uh, lust arises when we see, when we shrink the meaning of sex to a narrow range of concerns. Right. So it's lust arises in part because we have a, too narrow of a view of sex. It's not that we're too, our, our obsession with it becomes narrowed. So instead of seeing the whole range of what sex is about, we start to narrow it to one thing. Y yes. Um, uh, okay. That's, and, that's and, interesting. And, and even going back to um, your, your, your concern that you raised in the catechism uh, class, um, Sex is both about giving of oneself and receiving the other as as a gift. Um, you know, you it, it's it's both. Um, you know, you th there are some people in 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 life who you know love to give gifts or love to give gifts, and but they can't receive a gift for the life of them. Um, you know, whether because they already have everything they need or. Um, or at least they think they have everything they need. They're not willing to graciously receive a gift. Right. 
And I think that's kind of what that view that was talked about in the catechism class is doing is it's, it's focused on wanting to be a good giver, but I think part of being a good giver is also being a good receiver. That's, that's really interesting. Cause there's a, there's an element of, uh, how do I put this silliness to sex, right? Sex is a silly thing and you act in silly ways when you're in the midst of it. And I remember reading that, reading C.S. Lewis about this, where he says you almost take on, we take on different kinds of roles when, when we do it. And that's perfectly appropriate. Um, sorry, I'm just butchering Lewis's idea there, but uh, let's just ignore that part. Uh, but there's, there's something almost sort of silly about it, but, but part of the, part of it is, is there's a, sh- I know I've experienced a kind of shamefulness simply from the fact of having received, just like it's very difficult for me to take charity. So too, it can be difficult to receive in that way. And that, that then twists again, it narrows, it narrows your perspective on sex. And then you see sex as merely a shameful getting or an empty giving or uh, 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 or I should say, not empty, but back, there's no relational element. It's simply a one-way thing. But the we are called in, we are called by Christ to follow Him, take up our cross, and everything. And all of that is about giving, even to the point of dying, uh, dying for someone, suffering humiliation, injustice, so on and so forth, for the sake of others. But the goal isn't to be that way. Christ was not intended to stay on the cross. We're not intended to just be giving. We're intended to be interrelational, just like the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally giving to one another. And so eternally giving and receiving. In fact, the word is perichoresis, which means interpenetration, right? And so this idea that they're they're pouring into one another eternally, that's the ultimate goal. And so I guess... In many ways, if we look at sex in terms of the way we normally think of Christian morality, Christian morality is about giving, 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 giving. Um, and that leads us to almost a Gnostic view that the closer you are to dying by giving to other people, the more you're how you're supposed to be. But that's not really true. That's that's how you have to be given the fact that the world has fallen. But when you receive, when you get in a relationship of marriage where you where you found a partner to climb together with, to grow together with, then you should be in a situation, you should have times of giving gifts to one another. Does that make sense? Yeah. So- yeah. It makes, yeah. The, the, the one thing I want to push back on is marriage isn't required in order to be able to receive as a Christian. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I want to say that in this, in this one example, right, yeah. this should be happening in the church. Every time you get together in the church, and together with good friends, so on and so forth. But I'm saying marriage is, is one of those areas where right. you should be able to give and receive. And if you interpret the sexual act or marriage itself as merely giving, 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 then things are going to go awry. And if you interpret as merely getting, 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 things are going to go awry because you're not being, you're not living up to the image of God, which is Trinitarian, which is perichoretic, <laughs> which is giving and receiving. So... I like that. So before we get into some responses to lust, one thing I want to note that the tradition also says about lust that might step on our 21st century American toes is that 
um, lust, the, the, the tradition, uh, including Aquinas and Dante um, and, and others, has said that lust is actually the least grievous of the seven deadly sins. And the reason for that is, well, animals do it too. And so we're just kind of acting on our animal nature. It's not like we're, um, it's not like we are actively choosing to disorder ourselves in a sense, um, like we are with some of the other deadly sins. Um, and, or that, that our will is, it does not play a role in, in lust as much as it does in others of the seven deadly sins. Right. So maybe if you care, cause I know it's, uh, it's not as, it's not as bad as the spiritual sins because it's almost purely a carnal sin. And so it's less dangerous. Um, so, uh, if you consider something like vainglory, it comes out of this misunderstand misperception of oneself that requires more glory. Given. Well, that's like the word that's terrible, right? You, Cause you're understanding that I need to be given more than what I am. This is, this, this is inappropriate for me. I need more praise, et cetera, et cetera. And that can corrupt everything. Uh, whereas lust can kind of, it's a, maybe it's a little more, it's kind of stays in its lane a little bit more. Yeah, I think, I think we, I think we kind of see lust as so terrible because um, we misdiagnose it. Instead of lust being the source of these other sins, when lust is showing up in our life, these other sins can very likely be, be the source of the lust. Like, for instance, if you're if you're uh, practicing acedia um you know if you're going down that path of of spiritual sloth or however we want to translate that um if you're not being diligent there it's a lot easier for you to give into your carnal desires and and so um when we see lust showing up kind of as a result of these other sins we think wow lust is super dangerous when in reality lust is kind of the least dangerous because lust is less likely to lead to the other seven deadly sins as much as the other seven deadly sins are to lead to lust. Yeah. It's really interesting that I feel like, I mean, and Lewis in the great divorce, it seems like the one character that I believe was struggling with lust is the only one who makes it into the kingdom. (laughs) Like all the rest of them who are suffering from pride and all this other stuff, they end up rejecting salvation the one with uh and it's curious because the thing that represents lust on this guy actually becomes like a a stallion that he rides into the mountains um uh which is a sign that lust itself can be can be is more easily transformed into something that that is beneficial and so uh but nevertheless lust is lust is both what we perhaps struggle with I don't know if we struggle with it the most, but it's the most, one of the most uh, prevalent sins. If you just look around, right. I mean, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, The attempt to stir up your lust, to get you to do things, to buy things, to whatever it's all over the place. Everything is sexy, right? You want things to be sexy and you know uh, whatever Uh, beauty is a thing of the past. Now we want to be sexy. Um, And so, uh, 
but it's curious that that the it seems like this is the thing that I was most uh threatened isn't the right word, but I was made to be most fearful of um in my in, throughout my life was lust, like gluttony. I mean, come on. Uh we don't care about gluttony in the church. Um vainglory, eh, that's sort of hidden. Maybe the reason lust is so bad is because it's so obvious. That's that's why we emphasize it so much. It's an easy one to criticize because it's really evident what's taking place. Is that why? Whereas gluttony is kind of less clear, vainglory is a little less clear, greed kind of hides itself, uh, envy, you know, it shows up as prayer requests, um, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Maybe all of those are sort of hidden and lust is sort of out there. Does that make sense? Is that where it's coming from? Or is it because we're Gnostic and so we're really cool with spiritual sins? We don't like the physical ones. So I, I would argue that gluttony might be more obvious than lust. Um, I, well, we're I, less likely to hide it. We're yes. less likely to try to hide gluttony because, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. It tends to show up on my features. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, or, or just, you know, when we're, when we're eating, but even though, again, gluttony isn't eating too much. It's always eating too much. It's not, or I guess it is eating too much, but right. there's a different standard on what it means to eat too much, depending on the situation you're in. Uh, but, uh, but so, go ahead. So I, I think in 21st century America, we make it such a big focus in part because of our response as a response to our hypersexualized society. You know, as you were talking about, it's not so much a focus on beauty as much as it focuses on being sexy. Um, and so when we've reduced romantic love to strictly, you know, uh, when we've reduced love to romantic love or, or eros to where it's just about that burning passion. Um, and that's all, that's the only context that we can think about love in. Um, you know, we've, we've started to equate love with, with, with a sexual expression that they're that apart from maybe family, anytime we start expressing deep love that has to be equated to sex. Um, you know, for instance, when we go back right. and read some of the, the uh, letters of friendship that someone like Abraham Lincoln wrote to, to a male friend of his in that culture, it was considered very normal for men to express uh, deep love for each other as friends. Um, however, in our 21st century minds, we, we read that and it's, we start to think, we start to read sexual uh, expression onto that in, in, in a way that it wasn't there at that time. Yeah. And so uh, maybe a big part of this is simply that we are, we have ceased to be the kind of people who are, we've lost our, we lost touch with, with what intimacy is like unless it's sexual. And, uh, I, I have, a, I have a, I have a friend who, uh, when I was in seminary, like, uh, my family wasn't one to touch very often in any kind of like sense of like friendship or intimacy or love or whatever. And, and so touch has always been like, I've always been sort of really sensitive to touch and he would always be, and he was an athlete. So every time he'd go, every time we were walking somewhere, he'd smack me on the butt and I'd just be like, come on, you know, um, but 
to me, it almost felt, I mean, it didn't feel, it didn't feel, but it felt uncomfortable because I, I believed I was supposed to interpret, almost believed isn't the right word. I was deeper than that. I felt like I needed to interpret as a sexual inter, as a sexual interaction. Um, and he's just like, there's, there's obviously nothing about that there. And the idea of, of learning to be intimate, learning to restore that intimacy without having it be sexual is important because we, you see the interpretation of David and Jonathan as well, clearly they were gay. Well, I mean, no, people have friends, you know, and the same thing happened with Nietzsche's letters. There's questions of whether, whether he was, you know, he might've been homosexual or not, but no, because he expresses much passion and intimacy for his friends. Um, It's, it's the way they were. We've lost that capacity for intimacy uh, or we've, We've become less in touch with it, except in maybe the small family, uh, maybe in the uh, close family, uh, immediate family. But in terms of our friendships, we've really lost the sense of sense of what it means to be intimate with one another without having sex. Like you don't have to have a sexual relationship or sexual desire to be intimate. But now we connect intimacy with sex. But at the same time, and this, this is, it seems like as as we equate intimacy with sex and as, as we become more fearful of sex in the church, it's almost like we're undermining intimacy too. And the idea, I guess the the thing I'm struggling with is we need to learn to not just intellectually and analytically divide intimacy from sex, but actually understand what it means to divide intimacy from sex in practice and become better at exhibiting intimacy without it becoming sex. Um, which is, I think some of us might just be handicapped in this way, like permanently handicapped and we need to help the next generation. Cause for me, it's very difficult to do those things. Um, uh, maybe not with, with guy, but I don't know. I think I'm stunting in terms of, in terms of intimacy. I need to ask people about that. I don't think there's any question, but, uh, (laughs) well, well, I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, when we were in grad school together, uh, getting a hug from you was like unheard of. No boy. Now, here we go. <laughs> now, now, since then, you know, we'll, we'll greet each other with a hug and stuff because it's usually been a while. But, um, but yeah, I, it, but it, it's there are many, many guys that um, I'm a hugger. I'm I'll, I'll say that you know outright. I I, I like to give and get hugs. Um, but there are many guys who are not and who are made very uncomfortable when I want to give a hug. Um, right. And. Um, you know, most of the time I kind of say, whatever, you're going to get a hug anyway, um, <laughs> much to their dismay. Um, Jerk. <laughs> but, but I, I, and since I started teaching on the seven deadly sins, it's only encouraged me to continue being that way. And, um, and part of that is, is that, you know, I think we need to restore this idea of intimacy. We need to to restore the idea of deep relationships of deep intimacy and relationships that are, that's separate from sexual expression. Um, We need to find ways to um, offer appropriate physical affection um, and to care for others and appreciate others without looking for, um, for anything in return Um, to help us to learn to love without a sexual component I think is is the best uh, guard against lust than whatever filter we put on our computer or whatever 
kind of rules we set up as far as meeting people, um, those can, those are, are, are addressing the symptoms, not the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue, I think, comes back to, we don't know how to be intimate without a sexual component. Well, and I wonder, we, it's a, so let, yeah, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me kind of push a little bit and then make a, make a point. Um, and then you can see what you want to do with it and then we'll wrap this up. But so, uh, I, what, what you're saying is that it's not merely about, you know, I'm not going to look at any woman except my wife. I'm not going to interact with anybody. I'm not going to be on the computer unless it's in a public area where everyone can see my screen. I'm, or I'm going to put filters on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What, what we need to do is as we develop intimacy, it begins to fulfill the desire that the lust is a disordered, it has disordered. So, and as I become fulfilled, I have less desire for that. So it's sort of like people saying, if you eat good, healthy foods, it makes you feel so good that you stop wanting the junk food. Well, that's sort of what we're saying here, right? The disordered desire for, say, McDonald's, uh, uh, which is not a sponsor of this show. Um, <laughs> but but if uh, they wanted to be, we would... We would oh, yeah. We'll, we'll just delete the gluttony episode and replace it with a McDonald's commercial. Um, but uh, but uh, but once you start eating healthy foods, a lot of the claim that they make is you start you, you stop desiring unhealthy foods. Once you start exercising in a significant way, it stops. It keeps you from wanting to be lazy from just sitting around. You you, you start feeling that invigoration to move and what you want to move. So as, as we develop the goal of lust isn't, it seems like our goal is like this. The way we deal with lust is, uh, don't do anything. And once you get married, then just have a bunch of sex. So you never want anything else. So you never want it from anyone else. But the goal isn't to keep fulfilling it is fulfilling the sexual desire. The goal is to develop intimacy and then have the sex, the sex arise out of that intimacy in the context of a marriage but elsewhere for your intimacy to be fulfilled. And I think there's, there is something about this. And I wonder how many guys, when they're dealing with porn and so on and so forth, what they're really desiring is beauty and closeness and friendship and, and intimacy, but it keeps getting twisted into you know, pornography and so on and so forth. Or adultery, uh, uh, which adultery is another complicated, complicated issue when it, when it comes to this issue of lust. It's not complicated. It's wrong, but I'm just saying that that it becomes complicated in the mind of the one who's struggling with it. Um, but you, uh, what you're saying is, de- developing intimacy fulfills the desires that lust becomes. Lust often arises because we're starved of intimacy, mm-hmm. so we fulfill. We give a short circuit, semi what promise of fulfillment, but not actual fulfillment of intimacy through the through sexual acts. And then we go back to being empty again. We get the, we get uh, the dopamine hit from from lust. Yeah, that. yeah. It's like it's 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 like some some who some who are desiring intimacy begin to talk about themselves and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Sort of like I'm doing now. They talk and talk and talk and talk. And when they're done, and I've experienced this where I talk about myself a bunch, and then when I'm done when I'm done with the conversation, I realize I'm empty because intimacy isn't talk isn't about talking about yourself. It's perichoresis. It has to be going, there has to be a giving and a taking. So how do you deal with, so you're a married man or not a married man. It doesn't, I guess it doesn't, I guess let's just say married to make it more troublesome. And a beautiful woman walks by 
and you see her, what is, I know the, the, the classic response is if you look once, you can't help it. If you take a second look, you're lusting. Okay, great. So don't take a second look, but that doesn't change the fact that she's beautiful and you want to look at her. And by, and by the way, beautiful woman, I'm not talking about your wife. <laughs> I'm cause that that's an easy solution to the problem. So, so I, the, the issue is I think in trying to reduce it down to a matter of actions that are appropriate for all people. Um, and I'm, I'm being careful when I sit, when I'm, when I'm saying this, but I think there are, I, 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 while I might not be this person, I think there are people that are capable of, of gazing. And by gazing, I mean more than just a single look at a beautiful person that, um, they may be attracted to without sexualizing it. Um, to, to appreciate, and I don't mean this in a corny way, but to appreciate someone's beauty, um, without turning that into, into sexual desire. Um, well, there are some men who could do that, but the problem is they're all dead. (laughs) So, so, but if you're not able to do that, then, um, you probably shouldn't be, be gazing. Now you don't need to be um, obnoxious about it, you know, that, you know, some people were like, Oh, and then they're like cover their eyes or, um, you know, jerk their head in the opposite direction to make it obvious what they're doing. Um, but you know, there, there's, there is also a way of, um, trying to, trying to observe the dignity and value of a person um, and recognizing that um, in, in God's eyes, all of these have, um, you know, infinite worth and infinite value. And the sexual desire has nothing to do with that worth and, and, and value of that person. Um, and, and I, and I think there, there can, come a point in your life where you can say, I need to address this. I need to, to work on seeing that value and dignity in other people and getting past the things that might make me distracted for good, for better or for worse from the dignity and value that this person has as someone who's loved by God. And, and when you're saying dignity and value, you're not talking about an abstract idea that I hold in my head. You're talking about, actually learning to develop the feeling that this person has dignity so that when you see them, you admire dignity. And this is a practice that has to happen with everybody you come into interact, you interact with. And I I try to talk about this all the time. If you just engage your imagination for a moment, you begin to, and we've talked about this several times, you begin to see the depth and the wonder of the person before you. Um, But you just have to imagine this person has an entire history they have things that they love. They have sadness. They have pain that they've suffered. They have hopes that they're aiming at. They're full of all this, just as much as you are. Um, but I wonder, uh, and I brought this up in my in in, my cla- in a class recently when I was talking about uh, virtue um, in an ethics class, and I said I wonder how much 
our incapacity to the, the practice of learning to calmly uh, contemplate beautiful things. Uh, the fact that we don't do that is part of the reason why we can't calmly and without lust contemplate even the beauty of another person. Uh, someone that you're sexual, that you could be sexually attracted to. So I'm saying like maybe the practice of going into an art museum and looking upon beautiful art and calmly doing so, or maybe listening to, to classical music as opposed to the, the quick hit hook stuff that we have now. And by the way, I'm completely and utterly guilty of this. I wonder how much that, if the practicing of, of learning to see beauty that requires you to calm down and, and attend to it and relax instead of becoming possessive about it. If, if, does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a quote by Simone Weil, uh, one of my favorite quotes where, and I'm going to paraphrase it because even though it's one of my favorite quotes, I don't seem to have it memorized, even though this might be accurate uh, or perfectly accurate, but she says, uh, all other objects of desire we wish to eat. The beautiful is that which we desire without wishing to eat it. We we desire that it be, or we simply desire that it be. So we simply want it to be. Can you, is it possible to, to so thinking that a, uh, I'm just going to talk about women here because we're a couple of guys, uh, and if, but to look at a woman and to think that she's beautiful, that is not a sin. It's when you turn into a desire to want to, take that to to make it yours somehow to consume her that's when it becomes that's when it becomes a sin so i i think we try to cut this off so we try to put a put a, a fence around the law and then we put a hedge around that and then we put a, a wire around that and then we put a buffer around that and we try to back it off so much that we end up cutting off the possibility of an even the appreciation of beauty which is simply impossible for us. You can't do it. You're just going to hold back, hold back, hold back, hold back, fail dramatically, hold back, hold back. It's, you know, it's like a balloon building up too much pressure because we are meant to, we are meant to appreciate beauty. But if we're just, this gets complicated because if you're like, well, I'm going to get on my phone and start looking at beautiful. No, it's, it's not what we're talking about. We're talk, like appreciate the beauty of the sunset, appreciate the beauty of flowers, of music, of art, and develop intimacy with friends, real intimacy that doesn't involve sex, and you'll begin to learn how to appreciate beauty without de- desiring to consume it. Right, and 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 I, I one thing, I, one little thing I want to push back on is you know you talked about calmly appreciating, um, and I I'm not sure that calm is the right word because I think when you encounter beauty, it it should it should spur deep emotions in you that may not always be calm emotions, but they're right. not, but they're not, uh, emotions that consume or destroy. Yeah. I guess I would, maybe I should, t- instead of saying calming, I would say non graspingly. And I'm thinking of Philippians two here where Jesus did not consider equality of God, something to be grasped. Also Genesis three, where they reach out and grasp the fruit, right? The idea is that it's a non grasping sort of joy. I mean, that the ancient, the philosophers always refer to it as, you know, Kant and all these other people refer to it as disinterested. But they didn't mean by that that you weren't interested. They mean it wasn't self. It wasn't self desirous. It's like I want this so I can have it. Right. It's to look at it and to appreciate it and and be happy that it is. That is a thing that is, and I love that it is. 
full stop. Yeah. Um, uh, and that should lead in our marriage relationships to the way that we relate to one another sexually too. Right. So I love that you are, uh, my wife will hopefully eventually <laughs> love that I am. Sorry, that's kind of a joke, but, um, and then in, in so doing, then we give to one another and we receive from one another and we reflect the relationship between Christ and the church and the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's Amen. how you overcome lust. Now, if I could just do it. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't have any issue with this, so I don't know what's, I don't know what, I don't even know why we're talking about it. And that's a lie. So, all right. So any last words? Well, as, as we've, Going through the seven deadly sins and each one in in in, uh, in more detail, I hope we've you've gained the perception of um, that life is lived on a spectrum. That our actions are on a spectrum. There there are better things we can do and, and worse things we can do, um, and that the goal is to try to do the better thing. That the goal is to. And we're at it, the goal is to to see the world correctly because when we see the world correctly, when we value the world correctly, we're we're not going to be nearly as inclined to go down these paths and 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 follow the paths that these seven deadly sins lead to. Yeah, it, I remember we were, again in the catechism class, and this comes up all the time when we're talking about salvation uh, and justification, so on and so forth. Is that it's always an emphasis that nothing we can do can get us to God. We are always sinful. We were all. We will always fail. And while that's true, I agree with that. There's a point where that becomes something that infects the way that we perceive. That the goal here, your goal is perfection. You might say, but if your goal is perfection or nothing, if that's the if that if that's your if that's the way that you you see the goals, then you've got it wrong. And so quit focusing on the idea that are, are you ever are you going to mess up? Are you going to continue to sin? Yes. But the goal is not to, well, I mean, the goal, if you could just stop sinning instantly, but the goal really isn't even to stop. The goal isn't to stop sinning. The goal is to become like Christ. Right. Stopping sinning is a part of that, but the goal and, is to and become that's like Christ. And that's a, a natural consequence of becoming more like Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- those are obviously being like Christ and sinning are not, they can't go together. But to, but th- so the goal is not to, the goal is not to cut yourself off from all beauty. The goal isn't to stop eating, to think of yourself as being a terrible person, uh, you know, to fight vainglory and all this kind of stuff. Your goal is to begin to slowly transform the way that you perceive the world around you. And it seems like in every, almost every single one of these, and this shouldn't be surprising at all, the solution to it is to learn to begin to love your neighbor and to love God. Mm-hmm. And by that, we mean develop intimate, loving, close relationships in community where you draw, where you build one another up, where you encourage one another, where you have intimacy together, where you eat together, uh, where you rejoice in one another's successes and mourn with those who mourn. You, uh, you learn to recognize the importance, the, the level of importance that objects have and how they can be used to help one and help others instead of hoarding them for yourselves, trying to go through all the sins real quick. So, but, but the perception shifts and the key perception is to love your neighbor and to love God. And the way that we've talked about numerous ways to actually develop habits to do this, Mm -hmm. right? We're, we're in Lent now. 
fasting can help us under, helps us relate to actually fasting deals with uh, fasting from food can affect your attitude in terms of food, obviously, but also lust and greed and everything else because it helps you learn to appreciate the good things that you have. Mm-hmm. So friendships, love, thankfulness, those, those are the attitudes we should try to develop. It seems if I were to summarize, I agree. All right. Well, we need to stop. (laughs) Thank you for listening. And I think our next, I'm not exactly sure where we're going next week. I'm not either, but we'll figure that out. And it'll be a surprise when you, uh, when you see the podcast update on that Wednesday. Yeah. But we, we might be throwing in some individual podcasts like book reviews and maybe doing some lectures over particular philosophers or whatever. Um, if you are a listener, um, feel free to email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an underscore where the O or the A would be. Or uh, find us on Twitter and tweet us. And if, you, if there's some particular thing you'd like us to cover related to philosophy, uh, apologetics, maybe even theology, but it might get a little shaky there. Uh, feel free to let us know. Anyway, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. And have a great day. Thanks for listening.